0: Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at HopeHogusville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read together verse 4 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This passage of scripture, uh, I hope this morning, will be an encouraging reminder that we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. Uh, We are his children, and uh, we have been brought into a close relationship with him because of his love, because of his kindness. He has chosen to pour out mercy and grace and salvation in our lives, and that is a rich encouragement that we need to be reminded of. Um, We're walking through the book of Acts. Paul, uh, on his second missionary journey, stopped in the city of Ephesus and began to preach and teach. If you remember a little bit from uh, some of his encounters there, we we heard about how uh, he found a bunch of people that were um, baptized in the baptism of John, and they were believing they were believers in God, uh, and they were attempting to live a life of repentance, but they did not know anything yet about the baptism of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ and uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So. Uh, Paul was able to step into that um, scenario and help disciple those people and lead them to faith in Jesus um, and to trusting in him. And then the Lord was using Paul to demonstrate for all the Ephesian people the power of God. So there are all these miracles and things that were taking place through Paul, uh, so much so that people were taking um handkerchiefs and things like that that Paul had touched and running to bring it to sick people and they were being healed and people were speaking in tongues and there were all these different signs um, that caused his gospel message to stand out from among all of the other pagan voices in Ephesus all of the other false gods and worship and things that were taking place in uh, the city of Ephesus um There was one prominent false god that people worshipped, the god of Artemis, and uh, there were a lot of people that were profiting a lot off of this false god, uh, misleading a lot of people. They had made it their business. They had made it their source of income to lead people to follow this god. It became this huge um, marketing scheme uh, in Ephesus, and so Paul obviously was kind of spinning everybody into an uproar as he was coming in and freeing people from this false religion and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So obviously that created a lot of tension and friction. Um, In the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul addresses the people of Ephesus and uh, and he approaches it from two standpoints. The first is to pour out for the Ephesian people, the believers, those who are coming to faith in Jesus, out of all that paganism, he's pouring into them this really, really rich theology of salvation. He goes into great detail about the riches of God's goodness that he's poured out in their life through their salvation. And uh, in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Ephesians, um, and chapters 3, he is detailing all these great, glorious aspects to the fact that they have been saved by the God of the universe, the, the creator of all things the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. He is creating a picture for them that makes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stand out from among all the other pagan religions that are around them. He's establishing for them a form of apologetic, so to speak, so that when they hear the arguments from all the other people about why they want to worship a different God, these people will be solid in their faith and unmoved. They will not be led to uh, to doubt or to question their faith or their belief in God. They will be led to such a rich assurance that their faith is strong, their faith is steady, and they are unmoved in their relationship with God, no matter what anybody else in the culture says. Because the church was growing, but even as it grew, it was still a minority, it was still marginalized. They were still very much an outcast people by in by comparison to the number of people who are worshiping the false gods. So they needed a faith that was going to be rock solid. So Paul spent a lot of time on that in the book of Ephesians. And then um, verses four through six, he kind of brings in this therefore transition. Like after I've established all the riches of who you are in Jesus Christ. Now this is how you're to live. As a Christian, so chapters four, five, and six in the book of Ephesians are all about how we live that out in a world full of paganism and even um, uh, satanic attempts to thwart your walk with the Lord. Uh, and he is encouraging them to stand firm and stand strong. That's why we get in Ephesians chapter six, that section on the armor of God. Um, seeing that we've, now that we've done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, and he gives them all these tools by which we use to make sure that our hearts and our minds and our lives stay steady in Christ. So today, it was really hard to kind of pick one little section to kind of highlight for you, Uh, but I wanted to take some time on verse 4 through 10 because um, it's, for a lot of Christians, it's very common for us. We know some of these. In fact, you might even have most of these verses memorized. Uh, these, uh, verse 8 is one of those verses that we tend to kind of put in front of our children from very young age and encourage them to memorize this verse. Uh, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. That's something that we really want ingrained in the hearts and minds of all believers, that we're saved by the grace of God. Today I want to kind of walk through some of these verses with you, and then I want to um, parallel them a little bit with... Acts chapter 19, there's one little story there. It's kind of a big story um, that unfolded as Paul was kind of drawing near to the end of his time in the book in in Ephesus. And um, I want to kind of parallel this a little bit with that by contrast. So let's start first of all by just highlighting what the Lord has done for us in the riches of our salvation. First of all, We are loved. We are loved. In verse 4 through 7, we see this breakdown of the outpouring of God's love in the life of a believer. So your salvation, what you hold on to, the the reason you come and fellowship with the believers, the reason that you trust in Jesus Christ, um, is because of the rich outpouring of God's love. Not, Not because... You came to this place in your life where you looked at all the religions of the world and you're pretty smart and you're pretty intellectual and you've done all the study and you compared all the the pros and cons of the various religions of the world and you came to the conclusion that this was the best. And you came to the conclusion that this was going to be the most profitable way of living. That's not really why you are saved. Uh, In fact, if that's the only reason that you've come to walk Uh, to come to church here, if that's the only reason that you've chosen to believe in the God of the Bible, I would encourage you to dig a little deeper and to draw near to Christ and to realize that salvation comes only from God and not from your good intelligence. Salvation comes from first from the love of God. So let's walk through that a little bit together. We see uh, God's mercy and we see God's great love. Verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. All right? So you see characteristics of God, and then you see the action of God. So first of all, he is merciful, uh, and that is the act of uh, not giving somebody what they deserve. So it, he's highlighting the fact that we deserve what we do deserve, God is choosing not to give us what we do deserve. Now, this comes right after verses 1 through 3, where he talks all about our depravity and our wickedness and our sin. And he says, God has chosen to pour out mercy upon us, even though we are wicked sinners. He is choosing to be merciful and he is loving. God is merciful. God is loving. And he is choosing to pour that out on us even though we are completely undeserving of his mercy and his love. So regardless of who we are, God is merciful and God is love. But it is an an incredible miracle that he has looked upon us and chosen to love you and I and chosen to give us his love. Because he says, it is his love with which he loved us. And then in verse 5 he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So that speaks to our former spiritual condition, right? We were dead in our sins, not dying in our sins, not looking forward or or kind of doomed to a death. We were already spiritually dead in our sins. And he details that in verse 1. Let's read that. He says, you were, past tense, now he's speaking to believers, and that's how we should view ourselves. So we were dead in our sins, our trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, which implies that that old life is behind us. We're formerly walking in this way. So if there's any remnants of that left in our life, uh, the Spirit of God is currently working that out of us. That's the process of sanctification That's that process when something happens in your life and it comes to your attention that you have just been a horrible and wicked person and you can't stand yourself because of what you just saw come out of your life and you're a believer. That's the process of the Holy Spirit showing you sin that needs to be dealt with and repented of and turned away from because that's representative of the former life. So he's implied here that you were formerly walking in that way, not currently. All right. So he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, meaning that the spirit of the devil was only empowering us to do evil. That was our state of being. Some people question, you know, how... How are we born into this world? Are, were we naturally good and we just became evil? Or were we naturally evil and we learned to do good? And I believe scripture would teach us that we are all born into this world dead in our sins and evil. And we are taught by the spirit of the enemy to do only evil. But that is why we are in desperate need of a savior, because we can't save ourselves from a position of being dead. If you're dying and you are falling to your death, there is the possibility that you can reach out and grab a hold of something and save your own life, right? Somebody can throw you a lifeline before you drown. But in this case, it seems as though Paul is helping the Ephesian believers to see that no, you're not drowning, you're drowned, you're dead. You're you're on the bottom, and you're not swimming back to the top. The last bubble came from your mouth. You're done, right? So he says, there's no no hope. But he said here in verse 4, he says, but God. And I think that's the beauty of this. We We were so sinful, so dead in our sins. There's no chance that we could save ourselves, but God rich in mercy, rich in love, chose to pour out his mercy and his love on this dead creature, this dead human being that did not deserve his mercy and his love. He chose to pour out life. In verse 3, just to finish up what he was saying there about our former condition he said among them we too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest so he doesn't spare any detail about how wicked we were all right um, now that would not be a comforting thing to hear that would be very discouraging and very hopeless if that was all we heard But the reason that we can read that today and not be completely uh, and not completely despair is because of verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And what's the imagery there? Being made alive with Christ. That's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So because Jesus The Son of God came to this world and died and was buried and then rose again. That was a powerful work on the part of God to defeat the power of sin and death. Where Jesus took my sins that I deserved to pay for. He took my sins to the cross and with his blood he paid for my sins. He paid a debt that I could not pay. And his blood was sufficient to cover all my sins. My blood, my works is never sufficient, will never be sufficient enough to cover my sin for any amount of time. But the blood of Jesus Christ pays the price for all of it. He takes my sin to the grave. He puts it to death. He rises from the dead so that if I have trust in him by faith, If I am united with Christ by faith, then I am raised spiritually to walk a new life with Jesus Christ. So he says here in Ephesians, he has raised us up with him. So we have been resurrected with Christ. So yes, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now as Christians, our current condition is no longer dead, but he has raised us up and brought us to life. Now you're noticing a pattern here. These are things that God is saying that he is doing. These are not things that we are doing. God is working these things out in us, bringing us to salvation. And he says, by grace you have been saved. That's the grace of God pouring out salvation in in our life. That's the act of salvation. And then look at what he says. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our position now. Spiritually, we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenly places, meaning that our position is with God permanently. So we are physically still here on this earth, but our spiritual position is no longer dead, but alive in Christ and with Christ. And then he says, for the ages to come, he's going to continue to pour out an understanding of this, the riches of this salvation. Look at what he says in, in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, meaning that the kindness And the mercy and the grace of God, the love of God that's been poured out on you and I that we taste right now, we don't understand it fully. We can't see it fully. We don't see the full picture of it. But he's saying he's going to take the ages to come to continue to develop in us an understanding of the riches of what we now share. So this is a picture of how we are loved by God. He says, um... All of this has been poured out in us. It's the, it's the act of God applying love and kindness and mercy and grace to us by saving us from our spiritual condition. So we are loved by God. And the next thing that we see in verse 8 is a, is a breakdown of what it looks of what salvation actually is. So We're saved by God. We're loved by God. We're saved by God. And in, here, in verse 8, he shares four things about salvation. That, um, that I think is, are really good for us to hold on to and remember. Let's look at verse 8. He says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see in this verse that salvation is by God's grace. Salvation is through faith. Salvation is the gift of God, and salvation is not of works. And that should be, one, it helps us to recognize that we can't save ourselves by doing good deeds. But it also helps us in assurance of our salvation when we recognize that we continue to struggle with sin And when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God and see ourselves continuing to fall short of the glory of God, we are assured that our salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is a gift of God not of our works. And so God is saying to us, I am pouring out my, my rich mercy and love upon you. You were dead in your sins, but I'm making you alive in Jesus Christ. I'm raising you up. I'm seating you in the heavenly places. And this is because of the grace of God. And it is because of the gift of faith that I've given you to trust and believe in God. It is a gift, not something that you've earned, but something that I've chosen to give. And just in case you're still wondering, it's not by works. And if it was by works, you'd be able to boast about it. You'd be able to brag. You'd be able to say, look what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at the kind of person that I have disciplined myself to be in good religion. And he's saying, that's not how you get saved. My salvation comes from love and from mercy and from grace and from kindness. And by the power of God, who has the ability to raise the dead. That's what salvation is, not your good works. Now, I want to kind of compare that for a second with what's going on in the book of Acts. Um, As we kind of finish this up, this last story in the book of Acts, starting in Acts chapter 19, verse 21 through uh, 41, it's kind of the last big story in the city of Ephesus, before Paul leaves. There's not a lot of instruction in there about how we ought to live our lives, uh, but there is an example of people that were worshiping a God that could not help them, could not love them, could not have mercy upon them, could not save them in any way, shape, or form. In fact, they they were afraid that if they didn't protect their God, their God would fall apart, which to me, emphasizes the weakness of the, God, the false gods of this world. And by comparison, we serve a God that is much bigger and much better than that. So let's take a look at what's going on. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, he says, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go up to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, the way being the followers of Jesus, it kind of had a little bit of a nickname. All right? For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. All right, so he's a craftsman. This guy, he was a silversmith. He took silver and he made little statues of Artemis that people could hold and, you know, take it to their houses and set on their mantle or carry around and put on their dashboards in their car or whatever, all right? They got to carry around these little things that um, they could worship, you know, symbols of their false god. So it was his business is, you know, he made trinkets because everybody thought that, you know, carrying that around would, um, would help them in their worship of their, their god, Artemis. And it says here in verse 24, it says uh, a man named Demetrius was silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen, meaning he had a lot of business from this. These he gathered together. Now there were lots of craftsmen who did the exact same thing. So Demetrius was not the only silversmith. There were probably other guys carving them out of wood, making them out of other types of metal or clay or what have you. These, all these little Things It sounds like Lifeway Bookstore and all their little things you can go buy so you can worship Jesus better, all right? So um, this is what's going on. They had this great business out of worshiping their God. And he said, then he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia... This Paul has persuaded and turned away considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So they were like, this guy's going around creating rumors that the things that we make with our hands, they're not actually gods. So he's like, We we can't allow him to say stuff like that. It's messing with our business. But even, you know, it sounds absurd even when he says it like that. I mean, how does he not see... When he says it like that, we made these with our hands. How does he not see that this is absurd to worship these things that he made with his hands? But anyways, he says not only is there danger in this, uh, is there danger that this trade of ours might fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great ga- goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So he was worried, this guy, all these little craftsmen, well, I think really they were just worried about the, the income, the money flow. That's really all they cared about. But it was good business. And here, his idea was that if we allow this rumor to continue, that their trade was going to fall into a bad reputation. All right? And... Uh, uh, and then he was worried that uh, the temple of the goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she will be dethroned from her magnificence. Now, um, what happened after this was um, was interesting because they obviously wanted to make us put a stop to it. And they went out and got some of the followers of Paul and some of the fellow ministers of Paul and brought them into the theater, raised up a big crowd, a mob, and they wanted to put these guys on trial. But before we kind of iron out what happened with that, I just want to, by comparison and by contrast, highlight that the God that we read about in Ephesians, the God that we read about in his word— is not a God that we have to worry about. He's not a God that we have to protect. We don't have to make sure that he doesn't fall into bad reputation. Because regardless of what man does on this planet, God still is. Even if the church of God really messes things up, God will not allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to disappear and to be ineffective in this world. God has preserved this for thousands of years and always will because God never changes. God does not need to be protected by the church. God does not need to be held up by the church. And God will, it does not matter if the world regards God as worthless, his worth remains. These people had to maintain the worth of their God that they created with their hands and with their minds They had to preserve, they had to continue to foster and build up its value in the minds of all these people around in order to maintain the worship of this God. And the thing is, when God radically saves a Christian from the inside out, when he resurrects us from the dead and he establishes us um, with Jesus seats us with jesus in the heavenly places for all of eternity then we don't have to people don't have to work to make sure that god's worth is maintained in my life because the spirit of god is doing that god is maintaining his worth in me. He is constantly revealing to me the riches of his goodness and his salvation and his power and his glory. There is no threat of God's glory being diminished. And in this case, they were worried that she would be dethroned from her magnificence. There is no possible way that God will ever in any form of eternity be dethroned from his magnificence. God is eternal, and we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to prop him up in the minds of anybody. We just proclaim him, we reveal him, we preach him, and the Spirit of God does his work. And this is the contrast that we have with the God that we share versus the gods of this world. These gods that are made with hands... Versus a God that was not made with hands. And that brings me to the fact that in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 10, we are his workmanship. Now that word workmanship means creation. All right? We are, um, we are his work, uh, literally translated in. Um, by some to be a piece of work. So some of us, we are a real piece of work, all right? But it means a creation. In the hands of God, we are, made, we are created. And then by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are recreated in Christ, okay, by faith, all right? So we are this great work of God, but we are created. He is the creator. By contrast, Artemis was the created and people were turning the create turning to worship the created rather than the creator which seems even more absurd when the created makes something out of something else that was created and wants to worship something they made i mean how like we're already super small by comparison to an eternal god right as a created thing human being, something that we make with our hands is even smaller than that of lesser value. And we know that because I don't know if you guys, I'm not a, I'm not a craftsman, but just about everything that I've made eventually falls apart. All right. Most everything I've made, it lasts a little while, but it's going to start coming apart pretty soon. All right. I'm not a super great craftsman. All right. And I think even the best craftsman, you're utilizing things that God created. You're utilizing stuff that's from this earth that is going away. So you could be the best craftsman on the planet, but whatever you make, it's going to rot. It's going to rust. It's going to tarnish. It's going to corrode. It's going to dissolve and go away. It will be destroyed. It doesn't matter what you create. So we ought to be very careful putting too much value on the things we build with our hands. I think God's given us that as a gift, it's a good thing. To build and to make good things with our hands. But we ought not to put the wrong value on those things. They're, worth, they're not worth God. So by contrast, these people got it all wrong. Now just to finish up the story uh, in Acts, um, I'm not gonna read all the rest of those verses today, but basically they drug a bunch of people into the theater. And they created this huge uproar, but what I believe was not an accident was the fact that when they got there and started trying to figure out what to do, uh, at some point, somebody stood up and said, we don't even know what we're arguing about. What are we talking about? They were confused. They were like, wait, wait, who are we talking about? Wait, what's going on? And they were like, if Artemis is as powerful as we think she is, then then what's the big deal? These guys are not going to create a problem. And so eventually the issue kind of went away, and the disciples kind of went, or some, not, some of the uh, fellow Christians kind of came to Paul and said, hey, don't go to the theater today. Like they were wanting Paul to go into the theater so that they could drag him out and, and uh, beat him and kill him probably. But they were like, don't go into the theater, not a good place to go. But as they were trying to figure it out, they were like, hey, if you've got a legal problem with these people, you need to take them to the proconsul and have a legal discussion with them, but that's not going to happen here in the theater. And so pretty much the whole issue Went away. And it was shortly after that Paul said, You know what? Time's up. The Lord's leading me to go, and he left Ephesus. Went on to the next spot on the journey. But I wanted to conclude uh, by pointing out this uh, in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we are a creation of God, created in Christ Jesus. And we are created for good works that he's prepared. So there's a purpose in being created by God. God's made us for a purpose. God's made us for a reason. Our purpose is to glorify him and to make him known by way of whatever works that he's chosen to put in front of us. God has chosen a life for each one of us that's a little bit different than the next. He's given us responsibilities. He's given us wives. He's given us kids. He's given us jobs. He's given us co-workers. He's given us mission fields. He's given us resources. All these things that he has given to us for the purpose of using for his glory and for his good. We are created by God not just to live for our own glory or to exalt ourselves to a worth that we do not deserve, but to glorify him. So that's who we are. We are loved by God. We are saved by God, and we are created by God to glorify him. So I know for a lot of us who have been believers for a little while, and we've studied God's word a little bit, we know these things. But it's really good to be reminded on on occasion that this is who we are in Christ Jesus. And I hope that this will be an encouragement, an encouraging reminder that we are the Lord's. And no matter what goes on in this world, no matter how many governments Or, or leaders or powers or rulers in this world rise up against God and against Christianity the Lord will not be threatened and he will prevail and we are blessed to know that our eternity rests in Jesus Christ what a blessing so I'd like to invite you to respond in these different ways if you're wrestling at all with whether or not you're in right relationship with God I encourage you to cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation and for forgiveness. And his love and his salvation will be poured out upon you. He says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll be saved. And then for the believers in the room, I just want to invite you. First of all, I think when we read these things, we ought to be reminded that this is who we are in Christ. So rejoice. Rejoice in the love and salvation of God. We already have joy. To rejoice is to take joy again in what we know to be true. So we have the joy of the Lord. Sometimes we go through days of deep discouragement and difficulty. Look to these things. Set your eyes on these for a few minutes. Take your eyes off of the bad stuff that's very real and going on right now. But set your eyes on these things for a few minutes and rejoice. Give thanks to God for the riches of his salvation. And then gratefully rest in his created purpose for our life. I think some of us, we get really anxious about how we're living our life and whether we're doing it right. And I think we need to take it seriously But I think also the Lord would have us rest in his will and his sovereign plan. And then pray for help as we walk in his good works. The Lord has created a good work for us to walk in. Obedience. Pray that the Lord, by his grace, by his Holy Spirit, will help us to walk rightly with him. And then pray for peace as we walk with him on a daily basis. That we will not be overwhelmed by the difficulties of this world. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.